Uh, thanks for coming this morning. Entering my 15th year as a Catholic, I've slowly become conscious of the fact that I've developed an undeniable affinity for 16th and 17th century French and Spanish piety. I suppose this makes sense in a certain way. The first saint to whom I felt mysteriously drawn in my days as an inquirer before entering the Catholic Church was the great vanquisher of apathy, Teresa of Avila, who roamed early modern Spain, founding convents and vexing anxious clergymen. In a similar vein, the piety of St. Margaret Mary Alacoc has a similarly hypnotizing effect on me. So while the friendship of the saints is always cloaked in some, in mystery to some degree, I suspect that my affinity for these great women could be summed up by appealing to an old cliche that opposites attract. And as St. Thomas would say, we are drawn by love to those who possess qualities we lack and yet desire for ourselves. My time this morning will be spent quite simply. I would like to show briefly that Pius XII was correct in his estimation that devotion to the Sacred Heart in his day was nothing new and that it traces its roots deep into the sacred text, roots which draw life from some of Israel's most ancient texts. In doing so, I would like to see how devotion to the Sacred Heart, far from providing the faithful with a private, novel devotion, is the natural flourishing of Christian worship and prayer. And if in doing so we're able to comment on some minute details of biblical interpretation, well, all the better. The Old Testament, curiously enough, has much to say about the heart of Yahweh, while the New Testament has practically nothing to say about the heart of Jesus. In fact, it's debatable whether the New Testament has anything at all to say about the physical heart of our Lord. There are three passages, however, to which we might look. The first is found in the Gospel of Matthew and seems to be used more as a figure of speech. It is, of course, where our Lord speaks of his light and easy yoke, Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Here the mention of Christ's heart is important, of course, but seems to speak more to his general disposition rather than to his actual heart. It's more readily taken as a figure of speech. There are two more gospel passages that are intriguing but are far from explicit and in fact fail to mention Christ's heart at all, at least textually speaking. The first of these appears in what we might call the central peak of John's gospel, the piercing of our Lord's side, out of which we are told flow immediately blood and water. The second is the tabernacle's discourse, where our Lord speaks of those who believe in him drinking the water of life. If anyone thirst, let him come to me, and the one who believes in me, let him drink. As the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And while I'm convinced that this is ultimately related and in important ways, the Greek text contains no reference to Christ's heart. Our English translations betray us. A more accurate translation would likely speak not of his heart, but of water flowing out of his belly or guts. So as far as New Testament precedent goes, then we might be tempted to conclude that devotion to the Sacred Heart is clearly a later Christian innovation. While legitimate, it would be a kind of development or innovation to which late medieval piety perhaps felt affectively drawn. This would be a mistake, I think. To find the true source of this devotion, we need to return to the scriptures and the mystery of Israel and the manner in which God revealed himself to the chosen people. 
Now, in the Old Testament, we understand that to speak of God's heart must be in some way metaphorical. Unless we were to fall prey to a gross anthropomorphism, we must acknowledge that to speak of the divine heart is to speak of a reality set forth under the veil of human language. However, unless we are to assert that nothing true at all can be said of God, then the poverty of human language must still be adequate to penetrate to the divine realities. This being the case, let us see what we can see. The first thing to note when we survey the Old Testament references to the heart of Yahweh is that references to the Lord's heart are almost always and everywhere set in relation to the heart of man. Let's look at just a few examples. The first appears almost immediately in the sixth chapter of Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Genesis 6. In the book of Deuteronomy, likewise, we read about the relation of man's heart to God's heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I command you this day for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love upon your fathers and chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples at this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In both of these passages, we see that the heart of man has a direct effect on God's heart. In the days of Noah, the heart of man grieves the Lord to his own heart. It's a vivid expression used typically in the context of abandonment or grieving the death of a loved one. The exhortation in Deuteronomy, to the contrary, commands Israel to serve the Lord with their whole hearts in order to repay the Lord's favor, having been chosen as the Lord's special possession we are told that the Lord set his heart in love on the patriarchs, electing them for his own purpose. Here, the affectivity works in reverse order. Rather than the heart of man grieving the Lord to his heart, it is Yahweh's heart itself that is meant to be the source of our own heart's gratitude. For the sake of time, let's skip a few centuries to the last days of the judges. In the transition from the time of the judges to the days of the monarchy, Scripture reveals that the Lord will now begin to raise up individual men who will share a certain kinship with the divine heart. You may be anticipating me. Your mind may have raced ahead and thought of King David, whom we all know is described as a man after God's own heart. But the first of these is, in fact, the prophet Samuel. When the Lord proclaims his denunciation of Eli and his household, the people are not left as orphans. Quote, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. From 1 Samuel chapter 2. It is no accident that Samuel participates the threefold munera, or gifts, that we typically ascribe to Christ in the sacramental character of baptism by way of anticipation. He is a priest, he is a prophet, and though he is not properly a king, Samuel is the last of the judges and thereby a legitimate political authority in Israel. David, of course, as I mentioned just moments ago, is the one to whom the mind naturally gravitates when contemplating this particular question. Again, the declaration is made in the denunciation of a previous authority. Samuel takes the place of Eli, who had failed, and now David will take the place of Saul, 
but would likewise proven to be a failure. Samuel denounces Saul's disobedience and perfidy, declaring that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be prince over his people. The figure of David looms large in this regard, in part thanks to the influence of Psalm 51, for example, where David grieves and cries out to the Lord for the gift which the prophets would later associate with the new covenant. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. The prophets practically without ceasing testify to Israel's heart problem. Ezekiel prophesies the future gift of the new heart and the new spirit. Jeremiah of the new law that will be engraved on the human heart. Examples could be multiplied many times over, but the solution, as the prophets saw, could only be solved by the gift of the Lord in giving Israel a new heart in imitation of God's own. Jeremiah speaks for the Lord in saying, I will give you shepherds after my own heart, in Jeremiah chapter 3, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. This gift, of course, flows directly from the love of God. The Lord declares his great love for his covenant people. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still, and therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. So far, I hope it is clear that there is a profound empathy on display in the biblical testimony of God's love. The prophet Hosea is perhaps the supreme example of this divine compassion, as the Lord speaks to Hosea of the depths of his love in both spousal and filial terms. While Yahweh's promise to lead Israel back into the wilderness for a new betrothal is rightly lauded as the spiritual heart of Hosea's message, no pun intended, the Lord's declaration of love for Israel as his adoptive son is no less moving in Hosea chapter 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And so in the language of poetic symbolism, the scriptures declare what St. Paul will later call the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The revelation of God's heart in the Old Covenant leads directly to the revelation of divine love in the New. In the words of Pius XII, since these images were presented in the sacred writings for telling the coming of the Son of God made man, they can be considered as a token of the noblest symbol and witness of that divine love, that is, of the most sacred and adorable heart of the divine Redeemer. That's from Harietis Aquas, section 23. In the Old Testament, the names and descriptions of God are often metaphorical and symbolic. The use of anthropomorphic language to veil metaphysical reality is ubiquitous. When commenting on this phenomenon in his commentary on Isaiah, for instance, St. Thomas quotes Dionysius, saying that all those who hear plain things weave in themselves a certain figure which conducts them to an understanding of theology. The human intellect requires figurative language to draw the mind up to that which is always beyond what human language can depict fully. When Ezekiel, for instance, relays the Lord's promise to one day shepherd the people of Israel himself, we see the full impact of the Lord's promise elsewhere to one day provide Israel with shepherds after his own heart, 
The Lord promises shepherds and then transcends that promise by claiming that he himself will be the shepherd, which their leaders had failed to provide. Completing the language of the promise, moving from the figurative to the literal, the Lord makes good in a way that could never have been foreseen by reason alone. The glory of this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. God made man in order to perfectly embody in his own person the new heart of the new covenant. By reason of the hypostatic union, the heart of Yahweh, revealed and expressed so eloquently under images and symbols to the people of Israel, is now a physical reality. Upon the advent of Christ, the new David, the man truly after God's own heart, this language takes on new meaning, as God has now assumed into his own divine nature a specific and very literal human heart. We worship and adore the true human heart of Jesus, which has become for us a unique symbol of the divine charity, poured out into our own hearts, thanks to the work of our Lord accomplished in the flesh. And so, as Pius reminds us, we can contemplate and honor the heart of the divine Redeemer as a symbolic image of his love and a witness of our redemption, and at the same time, as a sort of mystical ladder by which we mount to the embrace of God our Savior. So, seen in this light, the prophecy of Jeremiah even takes on new meaning when he says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Jesus Christ is this one way and is in possession of this one heart given to Israel as the people of God, united to him by the blood of the covenant poured out on the cross, revealed to all on Calvary, and testified to by the beloved apostle who personally witnessed the river of blood and water which flowed from our Lord's heart, piercing his side. What is more devotion to the sacred heart on account of its intrinsic relation to the body and blood of Christ is itself a supremely Eucharistic devotion. It is likely no accident that, historically speaking, the formal promulgation of the Feast of the Sacred Heart follows in the wake of the institution of the Feast of Corpus Christi and the increasingly widespread medieval devotion to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. While devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus as an explicit devotion did not begin with Margaret Mary, it is her witness that serves as a kind of landmark for the devotion, and her own letters reveal the close connection she herself saw between this devotion and the sacrament of the altar. She speaks of the heart of my beloved Jesus in the blessed sacrament. And in speaking of the Eucharist, advises one of her sisters to, quote, set up her abode in this loving heart of Jesus. As the sacrament of divine friendship, by which Christ institutes the continuous presence of his love among men, we should naturally expect a close connection between devotion to the sacred heart and devotion to the blessed sacrament. It was, in fact, in prayer before the blessed sacrament that St. Margaret was first given the specific revelation of the love which flowed from Christ's heart in this particular mode. She recounts the occasion in her autobiography, saying the following, One day, having a little more leisure, I was praying before the blessed sacrament when I felt myself wholly penetrated with that divine presence and abandoned myself to this divine spirit. He made me repose for a long time upon his sacred breast, where he disclosed to me the marvels of his love and the inexplicable secrets of his sacred heart, which so far he had concealed from me. 
It really should come as no surprise that the mystery of the Eucharist and Christian devotion to the Sacred Heart are inextricably linked, both theologically and, as we see here, historically. Brought close to Christ in like manner to the beloved Apostle, St. Margaret is caught up into the Eucharistic love of Jesus. To be close to the sacrament is to be close to his heart, being, as it is, a symbol of his love for the human race. The motive for the Incarnation, according to St. Thomas, one of the motives, at least, since this topic is one of the few on which I find Thomas's answer ultimately unsatisfying, was the divine love for mankind. It is on account of his great desire for our salvation that he assumes a true body of our nature and comes to dwell among us. And, as Aristotle rightly notes, that which is most characteristic of friendship is to dwell together with friends. Nothing could be more fitting than that Christ leave his bride, the church, with the presence of his body. St. Margaret knew this well, quite apart from any theological training. Hers was the knowledge of experience, of suffering divine things. In a letter to the Reverend Jean Crosset, a Jesuit priest stated barely a year before her death, St. Margaret writes, How fortunate you will be to be able to receive every day this divine sacrament, to hold this God of love in your hands and place him in your own heart. I desire but this one grace and long to be consumed like a burning candle in his holy presence every moment of the life that remains to me. My only motive would be to be consumed in honoring him and to acknowledge the burning love he shows us in this wonderful sacrament. And here his love holds him captive till the end of time. The sacred heart aflame with divine charity is the furnace by which we are purified of iniquity, remade in the image and likeness of Christ. The sacred heart in this way is an image and symbol of theosis, of divinization, even of Christosis, in the language of some contemporary interpreters of Paul. When Solomon dedicated the temple which his father David had begun, we are told that fire came down from heaven, consuming the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. The temple was filled with the glory of the Lord, preventing even the priests from entering on account of the overwhelming glory. In the wake of this theophany, the Lord assures Solomon that his prayers have been heard, saying, I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. In the time of the Old Covenant, this was partially fulfilled, but in these last days, that promise has been fulfilled by the presence of the incarnate Son of God, whose body is the true temple, according to St. John. The sacred heart of Jesus is the burning, beating core of the tabernacle of his body. And in the words of Pius, the sacred heart of Jesus shares in a most intimate way in the life of the incarnate word and has been thus assumed as a kind of instrument of the divinity. God's self-revelation to Israel through her prophets and in her scriptures lays the foundation of this devotion in metaphor and inspired imagery and coming to understand the Old Testament roots of devotion to and love of the heart of God the contemporary devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus is casting greater relief. As with all things, reminding ourselves of the biblical roots of this devotion should increase the fervor with which we devote ourselves to God and call to mind the deep unity of the faith present to God's elect in every age. <laughs>